the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you and good afternoon. Welcome to this Wednesday, October the 18th edition of Lifeline. Great to have you on board with us. We keep you company Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Just looking at the news monitor here and getting excited as just moments before coming on the air tonight, seeing some of the new containment numbers that some of these fires, most particularly the Tubbs fire, which has been the most destructive of all, 83% containment. Boy, let's let's give it up to the firefighters there, huh? Of course, the work is not over with yet. Still ongoing problems in the South Bay. We'll keep you apprised of all that coming up later on in tonight's program. If you have a child at home, son or daughter, that seems to have sickly, I think what we'd call the child, right? They're not really sure what's going on. They just either seem to be lethargic at some times, hyperactive at other times, difficulties concentrating, never seem to be completely healthy, and you have been to doctor after doctor. You've tried pills and remedies, and nothing seems to be helping. We've got a guest coming up later on tonight that you will not want to miss. She is Kathleen the Allergy Chef. Her story in and of itself is absolutely amazing. She had, shall we call it, a tortured childhood because of a multiplicity of allergies that neither she nor her parents nor her doctors really fully understood or were aware of. It was everything from out-of-control weight gain, even though as a child she was eating normal portions, and then one malady, one sickness, one disease after another, and the doctors had basically given up. And then by a miracle, they began looking at her diet. And as it turned out later on in life, she had children of her own, some of whom have followed the very same pattern. And so she has learned how to cook and provide healthy meals for herself and her children that take into consideration a variety of, and I'm not just talking run-of-the-mill allergies. We know certain kids are sick to things like uh, peanut allergies or, you know, everybody seems today talking about gluten or concerns about uh, dairy products, lactose, things of this sort. We're talking about extreme allergies with extreme, almost debilitating impact on one's life. And the problem, of course, is where do you go, where do you turn in order to get the information necessary to provide your child with a healthy meal that, frankly, at the end of the day, is not going to kill him. She has figured all of this out, and you're going to be amazed to hear her story. And so if you and your family or someone you know has a child, or even an adult for that matter, that is suffering from a variety of of what appear to be allergy-type symptoms, it could be IBS, whatever, 
and the doctors have just simply given up or said, ah, don't worry about it, it's all in your head. Then tonight's program coming up later on when Kathleen of the Allergy Chef joins us. You will not want to miss that. I invite a friend to tune in, AM 1100 here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and of course on the web at kfax.com. All right, let's get down to cases here as we launch the program off tonight. There is a new bill out, H.R. 36, House Resolution 36, that, um, quite frankly, was a long time in coming. There's an oddity about law. California uses an example. Did you know that if an expectant mother is assaulted and she dies, the perpetrator will be charged with not one but two homicides for the mother and the child? And yet, of course, if the same mother decides, ah, this pregnancy, not convenient, heads down to the local Planned Parenthood, no problem, right? Well, there is a problem, because beyond the fact that we recognize that that child is made in the very image of God, science is beginning to recognize that even though the child is still in neutral, this fetus, is still capable of experiencing pain. And believe me, there's nothing more painful, I would imagine, than being dismembered as you are extracted from your mother's body. I'm sorry if that offended you, but quite frankly, that is the accurate description of what takes place in abortion. Joining me now is the author of the newly released Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion. She is the host of the nationally syndicated Cradle My Heart with Kim Katola, broadcast in some 600 stations. And Kim, as always, great to have you on the program. Craig, I appreciate your boldness to be honest about what it is. Yeah, and I know so I know some people that they that kind of says, "Oh, that's not polite speech." You know, it's mixed company, or you know, families might be at home having an early dinner. But you know, the, the truth of the matter is, that's exactly what it is. And you're informing many people who are not aware of what it is. People think it's an abstraction. They don't understand that every abortion involves another human body. No matter how early the pregnancy, there's a body involved. It may not look like what we think of a body looking like, but indeed, from conception, that one-cell organism is a body with all of the genetic information for who that person will later become in life. It's not, nothing changes from that moment of conception. So, yes, the only way to bring about that destruction is brutal and violent. You know, what I find fascinating with the advent of some of the more uh, recent, I mean recent in the last 15, 20 years, technological advances within medicine of things like sonograms, where now we can actually see the baby in neutral. And it is always a kick sometimes as the mother moves that you'll see the baby move and react. The baby can suck its thumb. Um, there's also been times when they have uh, engaged in doing the sonogram when other procedures are taking place, and you see the child reacting. And I would always wonder, well, if a child can react like they can feel the sense of mom moving around and they feel like they're being tickled, uh, then why would we think that somehow the child is incapable of feeling pain until such time as he or she is born. That just doesn't seem to square logically, and as we're finding out, it doesn't square scientifically either. There was a famous picture of uh, kids, I think six kids between the ages of one and five in Sweden, Craig, who none of whom had brains. They had only a cerebral cortex, 
and they were all displaying the obvious emotion. I think the picture was taken at Disneyland or some, you know, an amusement park. The kids were obviously enjoying themselves. And that was, okay, we've got to move the line back as to where cognition begins. How do we think without a brain? Well, these children are really challenging us to study and to abandon our assumptions and, and to go into science. And that's what's exciting to me about, you know, these latest developments, Craig. They're not based on ideology. They're not based on, you know, uh, the way we want things to be, which is sometimes, you know, uh, waging war on all the rhetoric. They're based in science. All of the advances that we're learning about in fetology are scientifically based. Now, going back historically, we know that Supreme Court decisions, Roe v. Wade, Doe versus Bolton, had for a long time held that an abortion would be considered legal in the United States through all nine months of gestation, as long as, in later months, a physician attested to a threat of either the health of the mother, which included physical, mental, and emotional. That now, with this bill, is being completely rethought. Give us some insights, if you would, please, Kim. Help educate our audience insofar as... What exactly H.R. 36 is attempting to do, what the support level looks like, and then before we we wrap up our conversation today, I want to talk about how folks can get word out to their elected officials as to how they'd like to have them vote on this. This bill has been around in various forms for at least five years. The House passed it in 2015, but uh, it, it didn't go any further than that. So now it has been passed. And it was a pretty healthy majority, 237 to 189. This legislation would call for uh, illegal, uh, for criminalizing abortion uh, after 20 weeks, and that would be uh, seeking to criminalize the the abortion provider, not the woman procuring the abortion. And so, um, they uh, there is an exception for the uh, life-threatening condition for the mother, uh, rape and incest. I don't agree with that, Craig, and I'm careful to say that. I have many friends who were conceived in rape, and their lives are no less valuable from the circumstances of their conception. But this would ban abortion after 20 weeks of pregnancy. It's called the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, and it's premised on the science, which says that at 20 weeks, the development is such that the child can experience pain, thus all of the abortion methods, and there are really only two, uh, are a cruel and unusual punishment. What you mentioned, there is dismemberment. Uh, the other method would be to inject the joxin directly into the child's heart, and that would cause a heart attack. Anybody who has survived a heart attack can tell you that is a very painful experience. And as we know, it doesn't always work. Sometimes the children are born and left to die. So this this brings us in line with most of the civilized world. Only seven countries allow abortions after 20 weeks, and they include places like Russia and North Korea. Yeah, sadly, there's been a good gross of a dose of, 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 of again, being frank here, uh, barbaric thinking, uh, both on the part of some of the medical community and others who directly benefit from all of this financially, Planned Parenthood, if you're listening, yes, I am talking about you. And so at the end of the day, to at least say we're making some strides, we're making an attempt to try and at least push back a little bit on, on what is one of the more grotesque aspects of abortion. At the end of the day, and you're at, absolutely correct, Kim, at the end of the day, a life is always lost. And, of course, irreparably oftentimes the impact on the life of the woman 
uh, is something that, while historically not none of those in the pro-abortion side have really admitted this or embraced it, I think there's an abundance of evidence to prove that, in fact, it's it, it, it's it's real. Everything from increased rates in, in breast cancer amongst post-abortive women to the emotional and psychological effects of all of this. So that said... We're making, I think, an important move in the right direction here. Now, you mentioned that there are exceptions, and and just to delineate for listeners, those exceptions are allowing for uh, the physical health of the mother, but this specifically excludes psychological and emotional reasons, while it also allows an exception for the case of rape or incest. And uh, I think it's also healthy here that in those cases, there is a requirement that such a rape or incest must be reported to authorities. Far too long, this has been a, a convenient way for men who act out in violent ways against women to essentially get away with it. So I think the requirement for authorization or, or for advising authorities of what has transpired here I think is critically important. And and while this maybe isn't ideal at every level, it certainly is a big step in the right direction. And I think, I, you know, I need to be careful to say women who have experienced crimes, the crimes of rape and incest, deserve the full force of the law, you know, to protect them and to, to see justice done against the criminals who do such things. Absolutely. And we and we need to give them all the support in the world. But some of those individuals who are now, you know, who were born before Roe v. Wade, Craig, say, you know, I was born, Rebecca Kiesling, you're probably familiar with her story, she said, you know, I was born in 1972. My mother was raped. I wasn't born because I was wanted. I was born because I was protected. And so we as a culture have to do better uh, in those in those hard cases. And this new law, it has the support of, you know, 80% of people. It depends which polls you look at, but it's a supermajority of women. Uh, women understand that after 13 weeks, we're now talking about, you know, something very different than helping women who had a birth control failure I mean, when we get into a territory where there is a viability and these children are living at younger and younger ages uh, of, of being, bo- being born at 20 weeks, 22 weeks, we're hearing stories, um, that makes all people of conscience, I think, extremely uneasy to think that whatever the issue is that's happening with a woman, that a child would have to die because of it. And we're finding more and more evidence, as we say, in support from a medical and scientific standpoint that underscores this. Moreover, and I think it's going to be interesting to see the way organizations like NARAL and Planned Parenthood attempt to come out against this, when even within the medical community, we've known for the longest time, um, as we've seen advancements in intrauterine surgery uh, for, uh, for babies, that routinely they administer anesthesia to the fetus because they recognize that the child in that um, surgery, um, the surgical process, can feel pain. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how they try and worm their way out of um, arguing, uh, you know, uh, the the argument that they're going to craft against HR thirty six when they try to use it as they've in the past under the cloak of so called science. When in fact it is so called science that supports this notion that the child can in fact feel pain. Well, I think Cecile Richards tweeted on October 3rd when it passed the House at Junk Science. 
which that's one of their talking points. Yep. That's their that's one of their plays. But it's not junk science. You can go to the New York Times with a great piece that they published back in 2008, uh, profiling Dr. Sunny Anand. He's now a pediatric professor, uh, professor of pediatrics, University of Arkansas Medical School, and a pediatrician. And he, he said, look, he's working in the NICU, and he saw these kids coming in and out of surgery and coming out much worse than they went in, very young newborns. And so he was allowed to go in and see what happened, and that's when he realized no anesthesia. He said, let's see if we can change that. He started, he did some experiments. As a result of his work, he said, um, two decades ago, what was being done to newborns would now be considered a violation of medical ethics. And just as you said, Craig, uh, there are lots of surgeries that are happening in utero, and anesthesia is the standard of care. The other scientists that have weighed in on this, Dr. Maureen Kondik, She's an associate professor of neurobiology and adjunct professor of pediatrics, University of Utah. She says, she testified before Congress in 2015 that uh, the fetus can feel pain, is capable of reacting to pain at 8 to 10 weeks gestation, much earlier. So uh, there's a lot of science. Many of the detractors, if you read the fine print, are not MDs. They'll be psychologists or they'll be, you know, in that cadre at UCSF which has the, you know, Warren Buffett funding uh, where they're churning out, um, you know, ideology science, if you will. Um, the, the science is definitely showing that the, those who would err on the side of caution and say that the evidence shows that the young children in utero can feel pain uh, ought to be taken Serious. Well, and again, you know, you could go back 15, 20 years and say that this was a conclusion from the pro-life perspective in search of a scientific answer. Now the tables have been flipped, and this is scientific evidence that, interestingly enough, leads to the same conclusion that many of us did years ago, looking at this from a faith-based perspective and just saying, hey, even if you just want to calculate this on terms of kindness to other human beings— at the end of the day, you have to recognize, I think every thinking person at least has to recognize that we're not talking about blob, we're not talking about tissue, you can't make it less of a baby because you call it a fetus as if somehow a fetus and a baby are not the same thing. And so now suddenly science is beginning to demonstrate what many of us have known in our hearts for 20 and 30 years. Good news to hear that this is making some progress with this Congress. And um, we urge you to reach out to your member of Congress and um, urge he or she to support H.R. 36. Let's hope this thing gets passed, makes it to the president's desk, gets signed into law. Again, there are plenty of protective provisions within this measure um, that allows for, I think, reasonable exclusions. Again, it's not perfect. Um, Seldom are these things ever perfect. But, you know, the big picture perspective here is that as we are working to win the war, you have to do that. Hill by hill, battle by battle. This is an important hill, if not important battle, to win. Our thanks to Kim Catola for being with us today. More information, by the way, about her great ministry online at cradlemyheart.org. That's cradlemyheart.org. All right, let's get a time out here. 523, we're a bit late. We'll get you caught up on traffic right now. So we head over to the KFAX Traffic Center and say hello to... Michael Bennett. I knew that. Michael, what's going on? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I have to tell you, growing up, and even as I sit here tonight within my 
arm reach is a box of, what it be? I don't want to call them by the brand name, facial tissues. That's right. Um, because I've had stuff, I've suffered from allergies my entire life. Not as bad now in my adult years. When I was a kid, I was miserable during the peak allergy season, generally late March, April, May-ish, and would have very sad memories, quite frankly, of a lot of summer afternoons or spring afternoons at home, indoors, with the windows closed, the only companion with the TV set, because I really couldn't go out to spend time hanging out with my friends or, uh, you know, playing ball down the street or whatever because of my allergies. Folks who suffer from allergies that run the gambit, mine tend to be airborne stuff, but maybe for you it's more food-related. People, I think, if, if, if you've fought that fight or are currently fighting that fight, you know what I'm talking about in terms of just how interruptive it can be to one's life. And it can run the gambit from being an inconvenience to interruptive to downright debilitating and at the worst extremes, even death. And I think with all of the advancements in processed foods, instant this, frozen that, chemical preservatives, in many respects, we've made things even worse for ourselves. So what to do? What are the alternatives? And if you are a parent of a child frustrated by the fact that you know your child isn't well, he or she tells you that, you can see that, and yet the doctors, quite frankly, have not been able to come up with anything other than giving you pills as an answer, then you're going to be very delighted that you tuned in today to listen to our conversation with Kathleen, the allergy chef. And Kathleen, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. Well, you're very welcome, and it's truly my pleasure. Um, I love sharing information with people, spreading awareness, and honestly just helping people that need it because it's just like you said, you know, we see ourselves getting worse, and sometimes getting a proper diagnosis is really difficult. Let's talk about your own life experience. Boy, as a child into your adult years, trying to find a proper diagnosis was kind of like looking for the the Holy Grail. Uh, it really was. So the, the short of the long, because let's be honest, we could chat for hours about this, but um, the reality is, is as a child, um, number one, I was always overweight. We're talking, you know, the fattest kid in kindergarten. Um, unhealthy and obvious that there was something wrong. Um, when I was a child, they knew that I had outdoor seasonal allergies, that sort of stuff. Um, so I could never, like, go on grass like normal people could. Um, had to be careful outdoors. I always knew that things like chocolate, milk, and eggs, those were the big three that would make me feel really just unwell in general as a child. Um, but no one ever said, oh, this child has a food allergy or a food intolerance or anything of that nature. Um, so fast forward to my teenage years. At this point, I weigh about 400 pounds. Um, and hindsight would uh, educate us to know that one of my main reactions is unexplainable weight gain. Um, even now, with a proper diagnosis, I can gain up to 15 pounds in a week if I have massive allergic reactions throughout the week to wow. something that I eat. Yeah, it's pretty intense. That's just your kind of, um, is this sort of, in, in your case, Kathleen, the way that your body reacts? Yes. So it's really important to know that no two people are the same. Oftentimes there's this misconception that if I'm a celiac and you're a celiac, we'll have the exact same symptoms, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Within the food allergy world, um, it's almost comparable to the autistic spectrum. Um, and it's interesting because kids with autism also generally 
um, end up with food sensitivities because their GI tract is pretty weak. So it's a comparable chart in the sense of, you know, on your lighter end, you've got your Asperger's, and then on your extreme ends, you have debilitating autism, you know, nonverbal kids, um, you know, outlashing and, you know, violence, et cetera. Food allergies are on the same scale. So you've got someone with a light allergy where they have to eat, you know, a pound of rice before they have that allergic reaction. And then you have the extreme scale um, where for me, for example, if I breathe in the fumes from rice being cooked, um, I will essentially, my heart will, let's just say I'm on the ground in about 30 seconds. Uh, my blood pressure drops to just about nothing and it's like being paralyzed and you can't move. Um, but we could both be allergic to rice. We just both react completely differently. So in my teenage years, I was on a trip with, uh, with a school group and it was right after dental surgery, so I didn't eat a lot. And on the last day of the trip, I could finally eat something. They served a very soft, creamy pasta. It was delicious, and it didn't hurt to eat. And then I started essentially having a mild seizure for about 36 hours. I was essentially just seizing and shaking uncontrollably. Um, I was put on oxygen. I was moved on the plane. They were ready to make an emergency landing. When we got back to San Francisco, you know, the ambulance was on the tarmac. I was whisked away. They did every test under the sun. Everybody kept asking, what happened? What happened? My answer was always the same. I ate the pasta. Literally, that's, that was my answer. Every specialist that came in, what happened? I ate the pasta and I ended up like this. They did everything. They did a heart scan, blood tests, you know, brain scans, everything. Not a single one of them said, you ate the pasta? Let's run a food allergy panel. And what, what bothers me now being, you know, on the other side of it is, as I mentioned before, the word allergy was not a foreign word on my medical chart. So, you know, I'd like to hope that with a modern day allergist or even just a pediatrician or a specialist, they might make that connection a little bit faster these days. But in my case, I was um, left to suffer. Uh, that was about age 16. It wasn't until I was about 25 when I got a proper, you know, diagnosis when we finally started getting to the right spot. Well, and it I'm sounds like, uh, Kathleen, from what you described, that there's there's a degree of frustration here, perhaps also with the medical community, because as you so aptly point out, it's not always the same source for the same reaction from one person to another. I mean, if you come in and you have high cholesterol, there's a pretty routine answer that the medical community has for dealing with that. Um, same thing true if you're dealing with diabetes. Um, there, there's, you know, common illnesses and common remedies. But allergies, they just kind of take on a life of their own. I mean, two people can be diagnosed with the same allergy to the same um, uh, food or airborne source, whatever it might be, and have two entirely total different reactions to it. One might be on the mild side, and the other one might be so extreme to the point of, you know, I've, I've seen and known people that will, for example, um, will begin to puff up in such a way that they, their throat closes on them, and, and they literally can be starved for air because of having such an extreme reaction. So no two reactions are alike, and therefore I would imagine that leaves the medical community in a pretty big quandary. And I guess then the final result is it comes down to the individual, like in your own experience, to kind of play detective to figure out what's going on and how to resolve it. It does. So I want to touch on a few things that you said, because everything you're saying, it's very on point, And I'm sure for your listeners, 
um, especially those who might be going through it, this is the part I think they really want to hear. It's the solution portion. So going back to what you said about, um, you know, them presenting themselves differently and no two people are the same, that's just a food allergy. The other world that's involved is it's what's called a food intolerance. And here's the biggest difference. A food allergy is defined as a specific type of antibody reaction within your body and the speed of onset. Usually a typical food allergy, especially if you have a severe one, it happens within instantaneous to up to about two hours. That's really the window for most doctors to be able to draw the conclusion and obviously say it's a food allergy. Um, that's why sometimes they say the gold, the gold standard is the oral challenge. In other words, can you eat the food safely? But here's where the twist comes in. Then you've got a food intolerance, and what most doctors won't tell you up front is you can actually you can have a, a reaction to an intolerance for up to four days. For as long as the food is in your system, even just trace amounts, you can still continue to react, which is why I always stress to people, and this is where the solution comes in, um, while the oil challenge is awesome, the true king is the food journal. That is the only way, like you said, to play detective. So what a food journal is, it's where you literally write down everything you eat, drink, every symptom, no matter how small it might be. Um, as simple as, you know, my eyes started to twitch when I ate, you know, such and such or whatever. Um, every time you use the restroom, your sleep habits, if there's any changes in your sleep habits, for example... Um, one of my allergic reactions to food, believe it or not, is night terrors. The kind of terrors where it's like you're strapped in a chair and you're watching people be murdered and you can't wake up. And all you can do is sit and watch it on replay again and again and again um, until you finally kind of wear it off and you can get yourself to wake up. Uh, I personally have over 250 symptoms. Depends on what I ate, how much of it I ate, um, and sometimes the food combination of it. Um, and then there's cross-contamination where... I might have a particular brand um, that's safe to eat from, but if for some reason they change their process or they introduce something new into that line, all of a sudden the products are no longer safe. Uh, same thing with biodegradable bags. I have a severe corn allergy. Everything biodegradable contains corn. So if you put safe produce in a biodegradable bag, I can no longer eat it. So you have this huge, huge, huge range. Um, and it's you're absolutely right. It's leaving doctors, you know, really just not knowing what to do. And it's, so it's not just awareness on the consumer side and the parental side, it's also on the medical side as well. Um, because for example, let's take ADHD for example. That is one of the most overdiagnosed medical conditions in our day. Um, we actually have a child, we actually have two kids who were both mo basically misdiagnosed with ADHD. And as it turns out, they needed a change in diet. Um, one of our kids, he needed really clean, simple foods, and he needed to be gluten and dairy-free. And he went from being ADHD to being closer to normal than ever before. Our other child, he was physically assaulting other students. He almost got expelled from school, and that was at age five. Turns out he couldn't have sugar, chemicals, pesticides, food additives, dyes, etc. So he has to eat organic, very paleo-ish um, and we have to monitor his intake of, you know, simple sugars. And for him, that change meant no medication, no misdiagnosis. So the thing is, is it's not just food allergies that are a problem and food intolerances, but now you have all these other things that come into play 
you know, people who get extreme migraines. They just think, oh, I've just always had migraines my whole life. Turns out they're food intolerant. You know, and this is becoming a common thing. And it's like you said in the beginning, what we're doing to food, it's not normal. You know, you rewind 75 years, food was real. And you could eat it, you could trust it. At least we, you know, started playing God and changing it all. Now we have all these sicknesses and we can't seem to figure out why. Well, you know, I'll but never forget, and this is, this is many years ago, walking through the aisles of Costco one day, and there in the, the section with sundries, this would be things like uh, pasta and canned foods and things of that sort, is bacon. And I thought, since when is bacon not in a refrigerated case? And I, I picked up the package, and it was pre-cooked bacon, and I turned it over, and I'm still mesmerized. This is not somebody that left the bacon there because they changed their mind. This is where the bacon was being sold. And, of course, when I turned over, pre-cooked, blah, 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 all you have to do is stick it in the microwave 10 seconds to warm it up, and then I start reading the list of the ingredients. And I'm usually looking for, oh, somewhere on the list, something that would say hog, <laughs> pig, whatever they want to call it. Uh, that was eventually down the list, but the first eight or ten lines, Kathleen, were all chemical names, and I'm sorry, it's been years since I was in chemistry class in high school, so I couldn't even pronounce the half of them, and I thought to myself, we have really come this far in the destruction of the the balance between man and God's resources that he has provided to us by putting so many chemicals in here that we can even now cook bacon and leave it out of a refrigerated case for months on end with no problem. I've got to wonder what all of those chemicals, all of the genetically manipulated vegetables that we're putting into our bodies is actually doing to our bodies. You know, you've hit the nail on the head. Oftentimes people come to me and they ask, but why? Why did I get this food allergy? Why does my child have this food allergy? And I've, I've had to explain it to so many people. There's multiple components involved, right? So let's start with genetic. Some people, you're literally just born allergic. It's in your genes. It passed from the parent to the child. It's, it's just the way it is, you know, it's like blue eyes, right? Um, so you've got that component. Then you've got the autoimmune component. Um, and so an autoimmune disorder is really where the body just attacks itself, essentially out of confusion. Um, and it's usually because there's a weakness somewhere or something needs to be treated or rebuilt or repaired. Um, and it's not uncommon to pick up an autoimmune disorder with a food allergy or a food intolerance. But usually if you can repair the gut and heal, depending on how much damage is done, you can start to reverse or lessen the effect of that allergy or intolerance that you picked up. So you've got genetic, you've got autoimmune, then you've got environment. Um, for some people, it's just, it's literally our environment our stress, our chemical, our air, our water, all of that. Um, and for some people, it just doesn't gel with their bodies. So those are the three biggest components. But then you've got the genetically modified stuff. We are the largest human trial experiment of all time. The FDA has what it's called, it's called GRAS, G-R-A-S, generally regarded as safe. So Oftentimes, consumers have this misconception that because it's in the grocery store, it's been tested, it's been deemed safe, there's nothing wrong with it. It's actually the opposite. Companies are allowed to essentially feed you whatever they want until someone says, hey, this product doesn't really work as advertised. Oh, well, then we have to take it off of the grass list is what ends up happening. So 
with all of that in mind, you look at the year 1997, and when I explain this part to people, they all just kind of go, oh, I get it now. 1997 was the year that Monsanto was allowed to start releasing genetically modified foods um, really into the wild at large scale. Well, the year 1997 is when there was a significant increase in food allergies in children. Um, I believe it more than doubled. Um, And so you look at these stats, you start looking at all these numbers, and if you look at history itself, I, I personally feel like I'm a part historian, part scientist, part chef, part crazy person who just saw a mission to save the world. You look at all of these components, and you can start to see how we've come here, why it is this way. You know, you look at a third world country, and I tell people this, you go into a jungle in the middle of nowhere. They don't have food allergies. They usually don't have the mental health problems that we have here either. Sure, they have malaria. They have all those other problems. And they might be starving. But they don't have the same Western world diseases. What's so different? I mean, we're all humans. It always comes down to food, air, and water. That's honestly the biggest difference between us and them. And you end up with a really sick world. Um, And it's really unfortunate because children are growing up in this world now and it's really hard to be a kid with food allergies. Let's pause at that point, uh, Kathleen. I want to take a brief time out, get our listeners updated on some traffic. When we come back, I want to dive a little bit deeper. Um, You gave us kind of an overview of the diary keeping. I want to have you go a little bit deeper in terms of how parents or individuals can more effectively engage in the detective work, the elimination process, and then everybody has got to be on the edge of their seat saying, okay, I get it, I understand it, I can't read the names and the labels of the packages either, Craig. What do we do? What are the alternatives out there where you can eat a healthy, balanced diet and yet not be exposed to all of this stuff? We'll talk about that coming up next. Kathleen, the Allergy Chef, is with us today. Hey, if you want to jump in with a comment or a question, um, give us a call. It's 888-367-5329. That's 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. I'll mention, by the way, that Kathleen is based right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's got a great website. We'll give you details about that later on. Meanwhile, if you're an individual or a parent, that has been frustrated by dealing with allergies and trying to find alternatives when you or your child can't eat, you know, the the list of what you can't eat is longer than the list of what you can, what do you do to find reasonably priced, healthy alternatives and alternatives that you can even fix at home? We'll talk about that coming up, too. Let's take a time out. If you want to jump in with a comment or a question again for The Allergy Chef, join us at 888-367-5329. That's 888 F-O-R-K-F-A-X. A look at traffic. Michael Bennett's got the latest. Michael, how we doing out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we're back into our conversation. Kathleen of the Allergy Chef is with us this evening. By the way, you can get more information on her website at freeandfriendlyfood.com. And... and is spelled out. So freeandfriendlyfood.com. That's freeandfriendlyfood.com. We're talking about her experience growing up as a child, subsequently her children's experience with allergy diagnoses, the challenges in getting the proper diagnosis, and of course, at the end of the day, then learning to live with it. And and for you, Kathleen, as you were articulating before the break, um, your childhood was a particularly miserable one because it seems like just about everything you ate 
created problems for you. Walk us through the process of elimination. You mentioned about the importance of keeping a, 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 a pretty strict, consistent diary so that we can, I guess, begin to um, correlate the allergic reactions with what we've eaten and when. Yes. So before I jump into that, I wanted to let you know the website is Free and Friendly Foods with an S at the end. Ah, freeandfriendlyfoods.com. Got it. Yes. All that's right. where people can find us. So going back to being a detective, keeping a food journal is extremely important. Um, my Everyone's journey is a little bit different. My journey will obviously not be the same as anyone else's out there. But this is, you know, I, I like to share this information with people in hopes to make their journey easier and faster. So starting off with a food journal. The food journal, as soon as you suspect something, um, it's where you'll want to start keeping track every single day of everything that you eat and drink. And uh, when you go to the restroom, you want to keep track of all of that as well. Um, and any type of symptom or pain that you might have, no matter how big or how small, even if you think it's standard. So let's start with, um, first off, how to keep the journal. I always suggest to people keep it digital. I personally, um, as silly as this sounds, my telephone is a BlackBerry Curve from eight years ago, and it's so awesome because it can timestamp and it has all these cool little shortcuts, and so that's actually where I keep my food journal, and then I just transfer it to a computer uh, every couple of weeks. You can do this with a smartphone. You can type it out if you're always with your computer or a tablet, but the idea is that by keeping it digital, it's now searchable. Um, so for me, what would happen was after several weeks of having particular symptom sets, it was easier to go back and then start going, okay, every time I ate this, within X amount of time, I had this particular symptom. Um, and so I was able to start narrowing things like down um, in that regard. So my personal journal, it includes what time I wake up. It includes um, the output of even just the amount of urine that you have. Um, just to help you understand, you know, are you retaining liquid? Are you expelling too much liquid? Um, every single thing is accounted for. Um, no detail is too small, especially at the beginning. Every single detail counts because eventually what happens is you either want to be able to see your primary care uh, physician or a specialist who either specializes in allergies or perhaps someone that specializes in GI health or even uh, functional medicine. Um, if you want to go with that approach, functional medicine is pretty awesome, too. Um, I personally love the combination of Eastern and Western medicine, especially when approaching these types of problems, because no two people are the same, which means no two people will have the same treatment. So from there, your journal, what it allows is that any specialist, any doctor can pick up your journal and they can quickly assess, okay, these are the symptoms, these are the foods you're eating, let's start with eliminating this, 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 and this, because these are the items with the most frequency, and let's see if we can eliminate these particular pains. So that's one way to do elimination. The next way to do elimination, it's called the TED diet, T-E-D, total elimination diet. It's where you essentially mono-eat. We're talking things like rice, bananas. It's almost like a brat diet, um, but generally you eliminate gluten, so the idea is by having the simplest diet possible, can you eliminate all of your symptoms? If the answer is yes, then number one, you've discovered you really do have a problem with food. And then number two, then you have to choose a path forward. 
you either A, need to invest in all of the different medical tests, or B, you need to simply start reintroducing foods, and every time you find a trigger food, you make a note of it and you keep that food eliminated. Um, The reason why you have to choose is because if you have celiac disease, and this is really important, celiac disease can only be properly diagnosed if you go the route of a colonoscopy if you're still consuming gluten. Once you've eliminated it out of your diet for as little as a few weeks and the the tract starts to heal up a bit, they can no longer see the telltale signs of celiac disease and you might be misdiagnosed. So oftentimes people who have prescribed themselves a gluten-free diet, they'll go in and they say, okay, well, you have to eat gluten for the next six weeks and then come back for the test. And people kind of look at that and go, but it makes me miserable. Why would I do that? And so some people question whether or not you need the diagnosis or can you just be your own doctor. Truth is, it's a little bit of both. If it's really obvious, like I eat gluten, I immediately get bloated and I vomit. Okay, you have a serious problem. But if it's something like, well, I have gluten, but then the symptoms don't kick in for, you know, three or four days. Okay, well, now you have a different type of problem. So depending on what type of problem you have, that really determines how deep you need to go in terms of testing Etc. And that's something that a doctor can help you work through and help you make good decisions based on your needs. So the last type of an elimination diet is um, one of the best ones out there, in my opinion. It's called the Autoimmune Protocol, or AIP for short. The And it's a strict form of paleo. Um, the AIP paleo diet is fantastic. It eliminates most inform- inflammatory food types of triggers. Um, the only allergen that's really allowed in AIP is coconut. And coconut is classified as a tree nut by the FDA. Um, however, beyond that, the AIP diet is pretty much top allergy free. It's free from nightshades, free from a lot of inflammatory food, and it gives the body a chance to just take a break and kind of go, okay, let me reset. And oftentimes within those 30 days of AIP, people find amazing healing. And all of a sudden it's like, I feel good. I've never felt this good. You know, I don't wake up with my morning headache and I'm not dealing with this problem and that problem. And then they transition off of AIP and all their problems come back. So just doing an elimination diet, for some people, um, it's all they need. They just needed that break, they needed a reset, and suddenly they can tolerate more foods. But for other people, especially people like me, once you do the elimination diet and it really highlights what your problems are, you're not able to necessarily go back to eating the way that you did before because your body simply cannot tolerate those foods. Um, Some of the other things to to consider, people often ask, you know, well, what type of food allergy testing should I do? Should I do blood? Should I do skin? Should I do both? The truth is, it doesn't matter what you do. You can get false positives and false negatives. So what I personally chose to do, I did multiple versions of blood testing. I also did a test called the ALCAT, which helps determine uh, food sensitivities. And this is where some Western medicine doctors, they'll say, well, the all-cat, there's no such, you know, you can't test for a food intolerance. You can only test for, you know, an allergy that produces this particular type of response. And the thing is, is I'm sorry, but you're wrong. That test was so accurate, it's amazing. Um, it was able to determine very quickly what my issues were, things that I knew and things I didn't know. And the blood tests backed up what the all-cat had diagnosed as well. So... My personal preference is 
go at it from multiple angles. Don't just do any one test. You need a full picture. Um, you also need to look into other things such as vitamin and mineral deficiencies. People don't realize it, but they go hand in hand. Um, for example, if you're low in something like vitamin D, you can actually develop more food intolerances just because your body doesn't have the resources needed to break down food and process it appropriately. I've seen this personally, and I've seen it with members in our household where low vitamin D led to other issues. Um, so that's kind of an overview. So again, on your journal, you want to keep track of every single thing. Um, and while you do an elimination diet, if you are taking supplements by choice, you should eliminate those supplements until the end of your elimination diet. However, if you're on any types of medications that are prescribed or any prescribed supplements, uh, you need to stay on those. Let's pause if we can. Uh, Kathleen, I'm going to ask you to stay with us for one more segment because I, I want to come full circle. I know that a lot of folks right now are on the edge of their chair saying, okay, I get the process of, of how we're going to do the detective work. So now once we have determined what needs to be eliminated, what are the alternatives? It's so difficult when you sit down with a young child in particular, although even old children like me cry when you say you can't have pasta, you you know, start going through the list, Right. When you tell a child all the things that you enjoy are bad for you and therefore gone is the pasta, gone is the chocolate, gone is the milk, and down the big list, kids can get very frustrated and makes it almost torturous to stay on these diets. We're going to talk about what the alternatives look like and how do you draw those conclusions. Kathleen, the allergy chef, is with us tonight. Information on the web at freeandfriendlyfoods.com. That's freeandfriendlyfoods.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back with more right after this. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center yet once again. Another update for you with Michael Bennett. Michael. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.